Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, Jim O'Brien, author of The Strangest Season. Our guest today is Jim O'Brien. He is the author of this book, The Strangest Season, 2020-2021 Pittsburgh Scene. Jim O'Brien, how did you spend the Pittsburgh sports scene during COVID? Well, for one thing, I see that we both grew beards during that time that we were in our houses so much. And I also, my cure for the COVID-19 was to be productive. I would, I've done a, uh, two books during that period of time. And uh, I, I read a lot of books during that time. You know, they say that to write well, you have to read well. And I pride myself uh, on the fact that I like to read. And I'm married to a woman for 54 years, Kathleen, that likes to read and we actually just recently read the same book which is rare but it was a book called out of the blue by a writer named bernstein from the new york times and it was about 9 11. it was a fascinating book because it was it was so personal it, it really brought the people of 9 11 to life including uh, the bad guys do you, do you read many sports books uh, that's a good question. I do. Um, I read a book this year that I liked. It was called uh, The Murder at Fenway Park. And what I liked about it was it was historical fiction. It had people such as Ty Cobb and uh, in the book, but it was fiction. It was about a, a murder that took place at uh, Fenway Park right after it was uh, opened. And uh, I thought maybe I should write a fiction book for the first time in my life, Murder at Forbes Field. And uh, that might be fun to do. But I've, I've dealt, for the most part, with uh, nonfiction. And it seems to work well. It's worked well for me. I've had a nice long run as a Pittsburgh author and writing f for different national magazines and so forth. And I'm very proud of my body of work. Uh, what number book is this for you? 31, 31. And uh, just this past year, for instance, uh, a writer that I never met named Michael Vaccaro of the New York Post told me, he called me from New York, We'd, we had never spoken to one another, and he told me that the New York Post during the pandemic had established a archives of all the work that had been in the paper through the years. And he said, I've become a fan of yours in a Johnny-come-lately manner. He said, I've read uh, so many stories that you've done, and I, I really like your style and the, the way you approach the, the task. So that was very flattering. And then he ended up calling me back a, about a week or so later, and he did a six-page article in the New York Post about on the anniversary of the Ali Frazier fight, the fight of the century. And it turns out that I am one of only two writers, 
from New York who are still alive that were at ringside that night for that fantastic uh, boxing promotion. So that was good to know. The other one was Robert Lipsight of the New York Times. But sitting across from me in my competition that particular night were uh, Arthur Daly and uh, Dave Anderson of the New York Times. And both of them have won Pulitzer Prizes. So I had some pretty stiff competition. My wife was out in the 34th row, and she was sitting with some sports writers out there, and she was sitting next to Diana Ross. And that was the thing that night. Everywhere you looked, I mean, I was right behind me was Burt Lancaster. Frank Sinatra was taking pictures over my shoulder. I was the youngest one at ringside. I was 28 years old. And I was sitting next to Nat Fleischer, known as the editor of Ring Magazine, and he was in his 70s, and he was the oldest one at the time. But uh, I was near uh, Lorne Green and Jack Kent Cooke. Um, well, there's a, you have a picture. Robert Redford, Robert Redford was there. You have a picture in this book of you at ringside with your uh, walrus mustache, did you have at the time? Oh, that Fu Manchu mustache. How did you? I don't, that was pretty bad. How did you land that gig? And did, were you kind of in awe? Were you sitting there thinking, wow, well, like, why me? I'm in awe now. I'm in awe now. I wasn't at the time. As Dave Anderson told me when we spoke on the phone one time, I was telling him that when I got to New York in 1970, I got some great assignments. I was very fortunate. And I was interested in doing everything. I didn't want to just do one sport. So I covered all sports, which I had done at the Miami News prior to coming to New York. And I was more interested in individuals and their stories than I was in a, interested in a particular sport. But right off the bat, I'm out at Yankee Stadium, and I was surrounded by some outstanding writers. I covered Ali Frazier, and you asked me how I got that gig. I had covered boxing in Miami. And uh, the Dundee brothers, Chris Dundee, the promoter, and Angelo Dundee, the trainer for Muhammad Ali, they took me under their wing, and they, they taught me the, the fight game. And I was attracted to it because there were so many outstanding writers who liked boxing and liked being on the boxing scene. So there were times when I would go to a luncheon prior to a big fight, and I was more excited about the fact that I was in the company of Norman Mailer, of uh, William Styron, of William uh, Saroyan, of uh, people who had made their mark not with uh, sports stories, but just with, with uh, fiction and nonfiction, both. And I always asked questions. I, always, I was always trying to get better. I was always trying to learn. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And, and I've covered just about every sport you can think of. I've covered a lot of famous athletes in my day. And when I think about it now, I'm, I, I'm in awe of the experience that I had. Uh, I never took it for granted. I always respected 
the athletes that I wrote about. And in my new book, The Strangest Season, there were at least eight Hall of Fame baseball players who died during the pandemic. And uh, you could have had a full team because Richie Allen deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. But because he was a jerk, frankly, with the writers, he never got in. And uh, he deserves it. I never let that affect me. There were some ball players that I wasn't particularly fond of. But if they merited inclusion in the Hall of Fame, I voted for it for 40 years, the Baseball Hall of Fame. I don't vote for it anymore because they changed the eligibility rules and I no longer qualify. What, what was and your criteria? When you were voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame, what, what was your criteria? What did they have to achieve in order to get your vote? That's a good question. And Brian, you always ask good questions. My, my main criteria was how often was that ball player on the All-Star in the All-Star game? My feeling was you had to be a great player for your time. Uh, so when you were in, people like Henry Aaron and Stan Musial and Willie Mays, I think they were in 24, 25 All-Star games, so they were pretty good. There were guys who think that they belong in the Hall of Fame today, and they might have been on two or three uh, All-Star games. And to me, that doesn't indicate that they were a great player for their career. And some guys get, get mentioned because they last a long time. Now, you don't have to be a great player to last a long time, but you have to have uh, endurance and you have to have stamina to last a long time. But you might not have been a great player. Now, you, um, when you were covering the Ali Frazier fight, did you interview both, do like one-on-one -on -one interviews with both Ali and Frazier? Yes, I did, and plus I had a background. I worked one summer when I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh. I worked in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, and Joe Frazier was a Golden Gloves champion at the time in Philadelphia, so I got to see him and people like Joey Giardello and Harold Johnson. They were all top-notch fighters. Um, Sonny Liston did some fighting out of Philadelphia, so I got to see them. And like I said, I went to any sports event. I, I didn't have to necessarily be covering it. I wanted to be there. And uh, I think that's, that's helped me a great deal with my writing career because uh, I was there. I saw it. There was a writer in Pittsburgh named Roy McHugh. And uh, he lived till he was about 102 years old. He was an outstanding writer, and I listened to him. I listened to Myron Cope, another local writer. I would seek out these fellows to get information, to get their style. And one of the things that Roy McHugh told me, I had interviewed Henry Aaron in his home in suburban Atlanta. And Roy McHugh said to me, show me that you were there. Show me that you were there, that you were in the home of Henry Aaron. He said, do you realize what a special position you were in? You were in the home of one of the greatest baseball players of all time. You should tell people that. And I went a step further. People have told me that when they read my books, 
They feel like they're with me. And they feel like they are in the room with the likes of Henry Aaron or Ted Williams or Sandy Koufax because I bring, I bring them there. That's always been one of my goals. Uh, when I first started out as a sports writer, uh, I had grown up with friends of mine, and one of my goals was to bring them with me, bring them along with me. And uh, I think I succeeded in doing that. When you're interviewing, I've, I've, when you're interviewing uh, somebody like, um, like Henry Aaron or Muhammad Ali who have been interviewed by thousands of people a million times, how do you come up with questions to ask that they haven't been asked hundreds of times before? I tried, I, I had another writing uh, mentor, Milton Gross of the New York Post, and he said, if you run with the pack, you'll read like the pack. He also said to me um, that um, you should write for that one person, just write for one person. And I always, I interviewed somebody recently uh, that was one of my favorite players with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that's Adam Frazier. And I had met Adam Frazier by chance two years earlier in Indianapolis. I was there doing interviews with former basketball players and coaches. And I happened to uh, come across Adam Frazier in the hotel lobby the morning I was leaving. And I didn't know him. But I saw that he had a Pirates bag, travel bag, and I said to him, do you play for the Pirates? And he smiled at me and he said, I, I hope so. <laughs> he was getting called up for the final time to join the big leagues. So I thought I'd been with him on a special occasion. And I also felt that uh, I rooted for him. I rooted for him. I actually, sports writers aren't supposed to root for players, but I always did. I, you know, I actually liked him. And when I was talking to him, I started off by saying something about it. I said, you know that great play you made last week? I said, you were able to do something that Ozzie Smith never did and Bill Mazeroski never did. Well, I figured if I said that to a ball player, he had to like that. And I, and I felt like my, my goal was, I've got to make this writer, this ball player, comfortable. I have to make him respect me and like the kind of questions that I'm asking him instead of the same old cliche questions. So, and I thought I succeeded in that regard because any ball player has to feel flattered that a sports writer says, you did something that Ozzie Smith and Bill Mazeroski never did. And of course, he wanted to know what that was. And I said, you were able to watch that play over and over and over again as you were leaving the ballpark that day, as you were on the team bus. You can watch it right now. And we didn't have that kind of technology when Pete Rose or Mari Wills or any of those great infielders. So you're, you're doing something special. Then I asked him if, what he was doing at the hotel, because the ballplayers weren't allowed out of the hotel. 
They had to take all their meals in the hotel. Well, I knew from covering baseball that baseball teams normally stay in the inner city. Football teams usually stay in the suburbs. They like to be away from the crowd. Baseball players like to go shopping. They like to go window shopping. And that in itself was reminding me of when I traveled with the Mets, I stayed at the same hotel as the ball players. And it was an old hotel, the El Cortez in downtown San Diego. And Dick Young, who was the best baseball writer in the country, also stayed there. But all the other writers stayed in new hotels in the suburbs. And Dick Young told me, he said, my paper did not send me out here on a vacation. They sent me out here to work. And we happened to be in the hotel when they announced the trade, and the other writers had to scurry to get back to time to take part in it. But we were there because we hadn't looked, at, looked for the new hotel in time. So I paid attention to sports writers. You know, I listened to what they had to say, and I profited from it. And I like to, I like to read books about it. Um, Tom Verducci is a good writer. Uh, I read his book on, uh, on uh, Joe Torrey. And then I read a book by Bill Madden on Joe Torrey. And it was interesting, the two different takes. One was about Steinbrenner, and uh, one of them told me that that um, Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez, could never figure out why Derek Jeter was so popular with the rest of the players. And he envied that. He envied that. And he didn't realize that it was his own demeanor. It was the way he approached people, the way he talked, and so forth. But Rodriguez has gotten a lot smarter in recent years, and now he's even a a uh, expert on finance. He's got, he's got money to work with, and apparently he works with it in a very smart manner. But uh, some of those things that writers told me, Dick Young used to say, dress for the office. The locker room is your office. If you look like the equipment man, they'll treat you like the equipment man. He said, look at how ball players dress. And that's even more uh, today, ball players dress pretty well. They've, they've got a lot of money to work with. So I always wore a sport coat. I mean, when I was invited to come on your show, I made sure that uh, I got out my sport coat and a nice tie and a dress shirt. I want to make a, pos a, a best possible impression. Uh, you, and you, now that I'm looking like Andrew Carnegie or Ernest <laughs> Hemingway, I have to work at it. You mentioned that you were a sports writer in uh, Miami and New York City and Pittsburgh. Can you compare the fans in those three cities? Well, that's an interesting question. And I, one of the things that I think of, a lot of, a lot of sports writers I know in Pittsburgh are very negative about Philadelphia, where I worked, and they're very negative about New York. And I think if, if we didn't learn something during 9-11 in the aftermath, that we're all alike. We're all alike. Uh, New Yorkers are, are not more arrogant than, than Pittsburghers. Uh, when push comes to shove, I think, I think we show our best face. And I know that uh, that was true in Miami. 
it was true in New York and it was true in Philadelphia. And, uh, but you know, I was in, I was just talking, in Veterans Day, I was talking about the fact that when I was in the Army, I was at the Army Hometown News Center in Kansas City, Missouri. And I managed to get a, get a, a part-time work in the evenings working at the ballpark. The ballpark was in, within walking distance of the Army Hometown News Center. So I would go to the ballpark. First of all, I could eat there. And we only got about $8 a week to, to get meals with, meal money. So I was eating well. I was meeting people such as Charlie Jones and Paul Christman and Lenny Dawson, the quarterback, and Hank Stram. And also I was, you know, I was uh, watching the American League for a change. So I took advantage of every situation where I was to be able to, I did stories when I was in Kansas City, I did stories in, in Kansas City and St. Louis on professional football players, baseball players, on Jim Ryan, the distance runner. I saw him as a high school student in Wichita East High School run a sub four minute mile. I mean, I've covered alligator wrestling <laughs> in the swamps down in, uh, in uh, Florida. I've covered every sport you can imagine, covered soccer, interviewed Pele. So the strangest season was, was an opportunity for me to write about a lot of different sports. I follow a lot of sports. And uh, I've, I like to think that I've met a lot of interesting people, and I try to make them more interesting with my stories. What's your favorite sport to see in person? <clears throat> well, I got most of my reputation as covering basketball. I mean, I was in New York a month, and I was assigned as one of four writers covering the New York Knicks in the playoffs and I was there when they won their first NBA championship. That was in 1970. So, like I said, I was very fortunate. I, I my first, uh, in one of my first beats in New York when I got there was to cover Monday Night Football. What a great beat that was. I mean, you didn't have to write about the long snapper. You didn't have to write about the assistant coaches. You could write about the quarterbacks and the receivers and the running backs. And so I was covering all the best games, and, and the world was watching because Monday Night Football was a much bigger event in the early days than it is today. I mean, it seems like today there's a game on every night. But, um, I, you know, I travel with Howard Cosell, for better or for worse. Um, got to meet a lot of really good media people, and I was lucky. And what's your favorite sport to watch on television? I, uh, I watch a lot of uh, football on television. My favorite sport to write about, to write about, was boxing. I mean, there was never a more fascinating sports figure than Muhammad Ali. But there were other interesting people in boxing. There were a lot of characters. I remember one time, <clears throat> And you had access. Boxers had to sell tickets. They didn't have season ticket holders. 
and I had the connections. So I remember one time in Miami Beach Auditorium where the Jackie Gleason variety show was, was held each week. I remember that Chris Dundee allowed me to be in a locker room where the girls who were in the dances in the Jackie Gleason show, they had the bulbs, the light bulbs around the mirrors, and I was in there with Cleveland Big Cat Williams. Now, how can you not love a boxer named Cleveland Big Cat, Big Cat Williams? And he was from Houston, Texas. And he had once, during a traffic stop, got into a skirmish with the local police, and they shot him in the stomach a few times. So he still had bullet wounds in his stomach. He's sitting in front of me, in front of those big bright lights. And what he was doing while he was talking to me, first of all, his hands were completely wrapped in white tape. All the fingers were taped. And yet he was able to put together a schooner inside of a large bottle. He was able to put it together and, you know, he pulled strings. You've heard that expression about so-and-so is pulling strings. Well, that's how you put a boat together with popsicle sticks inside of a bottle. And it, there was such a serenity about this big man who had bullet holes in his stomach and was fighting a, a heavyweight named Al Jones uh, from Homestead, Florida. I can still see him. And I had that kind of access. Uh, another time, this is one of my favorite stories, and it's in the book, The Strangest Season. I'm in New York, and I'm covering a fight that preceded the Ali Frazier fight. It was a fight with an Argentinian named Oscar Bonavena. It was a warm-up fight from Ahmed Ali. So I am, I stayed in Angelo Dundee's room at the Lowe's Motor Inn for two nights that week. Imagine that. I had access. And I remember one morning we went and knocked on Ali's door. He was supposed to run in Central Park that morning. And he hired out, I'm off today. We all went back to our rooms. Hank Stram, the Kansas City Chiefs football coach, called Angelo Dundee in his room that day, probably trying to get some advanced information about who we should bet on. <laughs> and when we came into the lobby that night, Ali's entourage is there, and they go out and get into a long stretch limousine to go to Madison Square Garden in a black limousine. And I walk up 8th Avenue to get on a subway to go to the garden. What I didn't realize was that Ali and his entourage only rode about a block in that limousine. They got out of the limousine. They went down the stairway, if you can picture New York subway station. They went down to a platform below. And I walked down the steps and I could hear a ruckus taking place on the um, a platform. And I get down there on Bundini Brown, who was Ali's cheerleader. He's hollering out. Ali's a man of the people. He's getting down with the people. And can you imagine people are coming home from work or perhaps going to work, and they're holding those straps on the subway train, 
and the doors open, and Muhammad Ali, the best-known man in the world, walks onto the subway car. Can you imagine why those guys' eyes were popping? <laughs> and we went to the garden. He held the door open for his entourage to get in for free. I went downstairs to the, to the bowels of Penn Station and sat down and wrote a story before the fight ever began. I had a story about how Ali took the A train to get to the garden. And before the fight even started, I had filed it with my newspaper, the New York Post. And when you cover a big fight like that or any big event, you are hoping to get a story that perhaps no one else has. You're, you're competing. You're competing as much as the boxers. You want to have the best story. You don't always succeed, but you try. And you try, try again. So again, you know, I've got all kind of war stories that I can write and fall back on whenever I see something today. I just saw a, a, a sports event on TV where they were talking about a ball player uh, who was homeless on the Pittsburgh Steelers whenever he was a young man. Uh, Meiji Harris, their number one draft choice. He and his mom were homeless. And I'll bet that I'm the only one that still writes about them that knew that years ago the Steelers had a ball player named Bob Coors, K-O-H-R-S, and he and his mom were homeless for a period of time on the streets, living in tents and so forth. So I have that to fall back on. Now I'm the, now I'm the experienced writer. When I first came to New York, I was the new guy on the block. And I, I still wonder how I competed because, like I said, those guys knew a lot more the history of the game. They knew about the, the uh, uh, they knew the managers, they knew the coaches. They had the connections, and I didn't. But as Dave Anderson said to me, when you're young, you don't care about those things. I want to ask you, you about. You just don't care. I want to ask you about something that's in your book. Uh, you have a, a picture of yourself as the publicist for the Pittsburgh Ironmen of the Atlantic Coast Football League. Can you talk about that? How you got that, and what it was like being a publicist <laughs> for a minor league football team? Well, you have to remember, I started out getting a job on the local weekly newspaper by sliding stories under the door each week. And finally, they, they didn't know I was 14. <laughs> they didn't know I was such a little guy. And they hired me as the sports editor, which I kept for five years until I was the sports editor of the Pitt News at the University of Pittsburgh. But uh, I was always, I was always uh, industrious. That's a good word for it, industrious. I was always hustling. When I was in grade school, if we were selling Christmas seals or magazine subscriptions or newspapers, whatever we were selling, I sold the most. I always sold the most. When I was in a rotary club, I sold the most tickets for chicken barbecues. It's the way I am. I'm hustling. And I'm not afraid to knock on doors. I learned to do that as a youngster delivering the morning newspaper. I had to get up before everyone else in my class. I had to go out in bad weather. I had to go out once a week and knock on the doors, maybe once or twice, 
to get paid. I was responsible for keeping the money and paying for the papers that I distributed. So I always did those things, and uh, I, I managed to get different gigs simply by stepping forward. And uh, like when I tell you about being in the Army, I was supposed to be an editor with the, from the newspaper standpoint. I ended up having the, the best multi-lithic newspaper in the entire armed forces. Uh, when I got to Alaska, they had a 12-page newspaper. Two weeks later, they had a 28-page newspaper. I was supposed to be the assistant editor. Two weeks later, I was the editor. The editor became a cameraman in the TV studio. So I was always looking for ways to, to do the things that I enjoyed doing. So what was it like with the uh, minor league uh, football team in a city that's well, it dominated fun. by you know, the... It was fun. Most of these guys had played for small colleges, and they had never really traveled on airplanes. So they were, they were having the white-knuckle experience. They were squeezing the chairs on the airplanes. And uh, I'll tell you something I did. When I was the public relations man for the Pittsburgh Valley Ironmen of the Atlantic Coast Football League, I was about 20 years old, and I didn't think we had a very good team. So if you don't have a very good team, it's hard to get publicity. So what I did was I went to see my friend Art Rooney, who was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I made a deal with him. I don't even know who authorized me to make this deal, but I made a deal with Art Rooney that we took, we shared three players. One was Tommy, one was a Mel Prophet, a tight end from UCLA. One was a, uh, a quarterback from Texas named Tommy Wade. And another one was a fellow named Fran Maluti, M-A-L-U-T-Y, who was a lineman. And they would practice with the Steelers during the week on the taxi squad. And then they would play for our team on the weekend. And we paid them the same amount of money that the Steelers were paying them. But I can't imagine doing that today, going to a, see a pro football owner and saying, let's, let's do this. Let's make a deal. Because they actually benefited. The players got to play in the actual games, which they wouldn't have done if they just were members of the taxi squad. And the taxi squad, by the way, the reason that that name even came about Paul Brown of the Cleveland Browns was the first one to have a taxi squad. And the reason they called it that was that the players who didn't make the roster, who practiced with the team during the week, they worked, they got them a job as taxi cab drivers in Cleveland. So that's where they got their income. Nowadays, they make a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year as a member of the taxi squad. So things have changed considerably in that respect. But I was, uh, when I came out of college, I was doing public relations for the Pittsburgh Valley Ironman. I had just taken a job in marketing and sales as a part owner, minority owner, of an advertising agency that still exists today in Pittsburgh. And Bino Cook, that name might resonate with you, Bino Cook, who later worked at ABC and was on television. Bino Cook and I started a weekly newspaper in Pittsburgh 
called Pittsburgh Weekly Sports, and we used the writings of all the best writers in America. Red Smith asked us why we weren't using his stuff from the uh, New York Times. Had all the best writers, and you might remember there was an effort by Frank DeFord to have a national newspaper called The National, and he rounded up the best sports writers in the country to work for it. Well, we had been forerunners of that publication because we had a better staff, we controlled costs a lot better, and we managed to keep our newspaper in business for five and a half years, whereas the National didn't last a full year. And when we went out of business, and I'm very proud to say this, anybody who had a subscription with us had a choice. They could get the, they could get the rest of the money that we were that they were due, we'd pay them that, or they could get a subscription to a national sports newspaper such as the Football News or Basketball Weekly. So I was very proud of the fact that we paid our bills. A lot of rich people in Pittsburgh who had interest in the soccer team and the, and the uh, hockey team and, and the baseball team, they didn't pay their bills. I think if you're rich, you don't feel a responsibility to pay your bills. When you grow up the way I did in the same neighborhood, you pay your bills. What neighborhood did you grow up in? I grew up in the inner city of Pittsburgh. My father was a, a machinist. He drilled holes in steel for a living, and my mother was one of the first women to have a job in Pennsylvania uh, at the state stores where they sold whiskey and wine and so forth. She had to pass a, a, a test to get that job. So my parents both worked, and uh, the, the good thing about that was I got to go out to lunch every other day with my mother. With no, none of the kids went out to lunch with, with their parents because people didn't go out to lunch in those days. Were you any good as a player? Good question. I always tell people I've benefited. My knees don't bother me, and my ankles don't bother me. Uh, people that I knew who were really good athletes have gotten artificial hips, artificial knees, and so forth. So there was a benefit to not being that good. You know, I, I played on, uh, I was second team on the Little League All-Star team. I was uh, on the all-CYO city basketball team. That was for kids that didn't make the high school teams. So I've always played. I had a fellow come to a luncheon of mine this past year, and he played college ball in Pittsburgh, and he said, Jimmy wasn't a real good ball player. And I thought, what did I invite him for? <laughs> and he said, but we had a lot of guys that played college ball that were in our game. And he said, I'd look around, and Jimmy was always there. And I took that as a compliment because I was either too stupid to stay home, I wanted to play. And I've been playing, I'm 79 years old. I still like to play. I play a game, I've gone from tennis to platform tennis to pickleball. So that's, that's the career path I'm on. I like to play Scrabble. I'm a pretty good Jeopardy player. But was I a good ball player? No. I had one home run in my life, and just recently I saw the local ball team uh, for kids in our neighborhood that the distance down the left field line on this ball field is 181 feet. 
And I remember that ours was 180 feet. If ours had been 181 feet, I never would have hit a home run <laughs> because my home run just cleared the fence. A neighbor of mine almost caught it. And uh, I, should have, I should have been a, a 333 hitter when I was nine years old in the Little League. But I bunted the ball once, and the bat stayed on the ball, and I got a hit. And so I was one for six. <laughs> but when I think back, I should have been two for six because I hit a clean single to right field and then lollygagged down to first base <laughs> and got thrown out. <laughs> so imagine a difference in my mental state if I thought of myself as a 333 hitter <laughs> instead of a 167 hitter at age nine. You mentioned uh, your luncheons, and in your book you talk about the good guy luncheons. What are they? Well, I formed those because I, when I came back to Pittsburgh in 1979 uh, uh, and covered the Steelers, when I was in high school, there was a luncheon series in a hotel in downtown Pittsburgh. And um, the thing is, is that I, uh, I used to go to that. I used to leave school and go to the luncheon. So when I came back to Pittsburgh, I, I start, the luncheon had gone out of business, but I started it up again, and uh, that was 40 years ago, and it's, they're still having luncheons, but I'm not involved with that same luncheon anymore, so I started my own. And the first thing that you had to be a good guy, and we've worked at it, and we've done some fundraising for some different groups, and we raised money to, to get dogs trained to be paired with veterans who are having problems uh, maintaining their 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 body, they're maintaining their their, their sense of themselves because they get very uh, anxious if they don't have these dogs, and and these dogs actually have cut the number of suicides among former soldiers, so I th we think we're doing something worthwhile. What happens at your luncheons? Well, I interview people. Imagine that. <laughs> I um, just talk to them, just like you and I just talk to each other. We don't have a Q&A or anything else like that. One of the favorite shows I watch on TV that you asked me about, I love to watch Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser, Pardon the Interruption. And I, um, I gave both of them their early starts writing for Street and Smith magazine, and so I'm very proud of those guys. And I think if I'd stayed in New York, I'd be on one of those shows because uh, I know my sports and I know how to talk about it. So I feel fortunate that uh, I've had the experiences that I've had. It's actually easier for me to write these days but it's more difficult to sell. And I was always good at selling. Well, you, on a previous time you've been on this program, you said you would go to, to sporting events and have a table set up and sell your books there. So how did you deal with the, the COVID era? Well, I wasn't any different than Rocky Blyer in that respect. All of his speaking appearances were shut down. And I, I've gone through a two-year period where almost all the library appearances and show appearances and Right now, I'm waiting for some TV studios and 
in Pittsburgh to, to open up uh, so that I can do some shows. So I got, basically got shut down. But I, I maintain a mailing list of people that have bought my books through the years. I send out flyers. And uh, I've managed to be able to, uh, to sell a couple thousand books a year uh, and continue to, uh, to turn them out. How much time did you spend during the COVID year uh, writing? A lot. I got up in the morning and went right to my, to my computer. And I would write till about noon, and then I'd go get lunch, and I would uh, spend the afternoon relaxing or something, watching sports. But I wrote, I wrote every morning. And uh, like I said, it was easy to write. It was kind of, it was kind of strange. Rocky Blyer, who wrote the preface to the book, the, the great Steeler and Vietnam War veteran, in his preface to my book, The Strangest Season, he had a line where he said, Jim had remarks that I made that escaped my mind the moment I said them. But Jim remembered. And he said, Jim's a little strange, too, because he, he likes to write about us. He likes to, he's made us last a, a lifetime as far as the public consciousness of the Pittsburgh sports fan. Now, you brought along another book that was your previous book that you were not on this program for. Can you talk a little bit about that? Franco, Rocky, and Friends, the title of the book is It Pays to Be a Good Guy. And I really believe that. And, you know, there, a week doesn't pass that some ball player in some sport doesn't do something really stupid. <laughs> but Franco and Rocky are really good guys. I mean, they have stood the test of time. And I, I managed two years ago to fly on a private jet to Calgary with Franco and two other people. I had Franco sitting across from me like in a confession box for eight hours each way. I had him a captive audience. My wife asked him how he survived <laughs> talking to me for that long. And he laughed. And Franco would help me out of the limousines when we were in Calgary because they were so low to the ground. And I had this distinct feeling that Franco was looking after me. He was making sure I was okay. He was respecting my, my age and perhaps my status as a sports writer. And uh, we've talked since then. We've talked, and, and I thought, nobody's ever talked to Franco Harris for 16 hours. And I also had another occasion where I rode with Rocky Blyer from Pittsburgh to the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. And he drove, and I took notes. And I had a yellow ledger legal pad on my lap. And this was something that I had learned when I was covering the Knicks in New York. One day I went out to their practice, and I was going to drive Bill Bradley into the city. 
and my Volkswagen. And Bill Bradley, who was brighter than, brighter than most of the people in the room, Bill Bradley said to me, give me the keys. I'll drive. This way you can take notes and we won't waste any time. And it was true. I rode into, the, into Manhattan, sitting next to Bill Bradley, asking him questions and writing down the answers. And that's what I did with Rocky Blyer. Going, in fact, we missed the turnoff in Canton and had to turn around and make a U-turn and come back. So Rocky Blyer has written the preface to my new book, The Strangest Season. Uh, we have a very good relationship. And when you ask me about how do I get these guys to, to answer questions that, that aren't the same that they've been asked all their lives, maybe it's because I don't think I don't think the same way as everybody else. That's good and bad. But, who, who were some of the toughest interviews? Like people who would give you one-word answers or who, who like you had to drag answers out of them? Well, one time I went to interview Cordell Stewart of the Steelers. And I was not covering the team for a local newspaper at the time. I was just writing books. And I went to Cordell in a locker room and I introduced him, myself to him. I always introduce myself to ball players. A lot of sports writers don't do that. I said, hi, I'm Jim O'Brien, and I'm working on a book about the Steelers. I'd like to talk to you. So Cordell Stewart looks at me and sneers, and he says, don't you know what day it is? That got my attention. <laughs> what day it is? What do you mean? He said, it's Thursday. I only do interviews on Wednesday. I said, oh, I said, let me see. And I pulled out, I said, I have my pen. I said, I only do interviews on Wednesday. And I was being a bit of a smart ass. I said, I, I uh, never had that quote before. That's the first time a ball player has told me I only do interviews on Wednesday. I said, you know, Franco Harris never told me that. Joe Green never told me that. Terry Bradshaw never told me that. Julius Serving never told me that. Muhammad Ali never told me that. Jimmy Ellis never told me that. And finally, the trainer for the Steelers grabs me in a mock gesture like he's wrestling me. He pulls me aside and he says, for God's sake, Jim, leave him alone. Besides, he doesn't even know who the heck you're talking about. <laughs> so... Did you, uh, did you? Another guy that was difficult was Alex Johnson, a baseball player in the American League. I, and I, I had read how difficult he was, but I always went with the idea that I haven't interviewed him before, and he was just as difficult with me. In fact, a writer named Phil Jasner of the newspaper in uh, New Jersey wrote a column about my interview or attempt to interview Alex Johnson. Now, meanwhile, Alex Johnson's brother, Ron Johnson, played for the New York Giants football team and had played at the University of Michigan, and there wasn't a nicer guy. I interviewed Ted Williams. He was supposed to be difficult, and he wasn't. He wasn't. Did, and, did uh, you ever interview Barry Bonds when he was with the Pirates? No, he was supposed to be a notoriously no. tough interview. I wasn't around on the beat that time, but I did vote for Barry Bonds 
for the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he still has not gotten enough votes. I would vote for Roger Clemens, and I wasn't able to vote for Pete Rose. People don't realize this. Pete Rose's name has never appeared on the ballot for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Should it? Of course it should. He's one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And the hypocrisy of it now is that you can't watch a sports event on television these days that all the ads aren't about gambling. And they've got ball players, and you've got a team now in Las Vegas. That never would have happened when Pete Rozelle was the commissioner. Just wouldn't happen. But today it's okay to gamble because the leagues find out that, hey, there's a lot of money to be made if we get involved in gambling. We can forget about Sin City and that sort of thing. We'll make some money and we'll, we'll share in the pot. So hypocrisy reigns. Pete Rose was one of the most competitive baseball players of all time. Had so many hits. Was just a, a fierce competitor and was funny. What do you think in COVID years, what leagues handled COVID the best and what leagues handled COVID the worst? Well, that's one of those questions, Brian, that I can't answer because I don't think I just, I just don't think that way, um, and that's true of a lot of situations, I guess. I I don't know how much, you know. In my book, I write about the impact of COVID nineteen, not from a medical standpoint, but just how it impacted these different games and how it killed people and so forth. So those stories I was, I was interested in. But uh, I'm not a guy who likes to write about rules interpretations. I think it's awful that they put a runner on second base now in extra inning baseball games. I don't like shootouts in hockey. I don't like shootouts in any sport. I like you to play the game the way it's meant to be played and decide the outcome the way it's supposed to be decided, not through some artificial process. What kind of shape do you think baseball is? And I also did? believe oh, that you should just watch the game. Just watch the game. I went to a hockey game recently, and the Pittsburgh Penguins were playing the Philadelphia Flyers, and they were arch enemies. The guy behind me was from Philadelphia. He was the most obnoxious person that I've been around at a ballpark. He swore every minute. He took the name of the Lord in vain every other minute. The guy, and, and, and he was giving the Flyers a hard time. I'm wondering, why did this man bother to come to the game? He's not a Flyers fan. He's a jerk. And that's one of my rules as a writer. I don't write about jerks. Oh, when you were on this program five or six years ago, you said you thought that was going to be your last book. And now... It's five or six years later. You've probably come up with at least five or six books in that time. Uh, you're still writing? I'm still writing, but I promised my wife this is my, The Strangest Season is my last book. I'm still writing articles, but uh, I think I'm going to stop uh, producing books. Well, you have. But if you come out of retirement again, who knows? <laughs> well, you've been a great guest on this program over the years. I hope we can have you on again sometime. The guest is Jim O'Brien, and this is his latest book, The Strangest Season. 
2020 and 2021 Pittsburgh scene. Jim O'Brien, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.